Hello, and welcome back. This week for episode 11, I'm joined by Selicia Chandra, Vulture Conservation Manager for BirdLife Africa, who is based in Kenya and joining us from Nairobi. Selicia has a colourful background with a strong activist streak who, in response to the poaching crisis, which tore through Kenya in 2011-12, left the world of finance to join the fight back. She became a key figure in leading the movement, which has since influenced changes in policy and law enforcement. From there, she worked in lion conservation before moving on to vultures, the species at the centre of today's conversation. We cover a range of issues, including why poaching has skyrocketed, the complex incentives behind poisoning as a method, just how vital vultures are to ecosystems and the prevention of diseases spreading, and much more. If you like this episode and would like to follow Celicia's work, please follow the links in the description. And if you would like to support us, you can make a donation at restoreourplanet.org or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, welcome back to Restore Our Planet podcast with me, your host, Jack Cole. I'm joined today by Celicia Chandra, who is joining us from Kenya. Celicia works in restores uh, all our partnerships in to protect vultures from vulture poisoning. So Celicia, welcome, how are you? Thank you, thank you, Jack. I'm good, how are you? Very well, thank you. So to kick things off, would you mind just giving our listeners a little flavor of your, your background and how you came to be doing the, the work that you're doing today? Absolutely, so I'm currently the Vulture Conservation Manager for Africa at BirdLife International, which is, as you mentioned, part of the Restore Species project. and um, you know, I've been in this position for about a year and my journey in conservation started in 2012 when I kind of decided to leave my corporate career of about 15 years behind um, and sort of use the skill sets that I had to make a difference. And it was, you know, I came back home to Kenya in the middle of a crazy poaching crisis and I just realized that this is this is what my calling was and I needed to to change careers and you know here I am today I volunteered for a few months and and then got a job with an organization called Lion Guardians and worked in human wildlife conflict um with lions for for eight years. Fantastic so just quickly you mentioned that there was a poaching crisis does that mean that there was a sudden spike at some point or like the trends were changing What, what what happened there? What was going on yeah, absolutely. So, and I don't know if you remember, but it was, I believe there was a, a, an ivory sale around this time. And then following that in 2012 and 2013, there seemed to be a huge uptick in uh, rhino and elephant poaching, especially in Kenya, which is my home country. Um, and essentially that was not being sort of shared uh, very vocally and the citizens here were getting very upset that you know this is a this is a huge disaster and we need to address it and so there was a lot of talk around that time about how do we manage the you know change the wildlife act to be more punitive what are the things that we can do you know we as citizens wanted it to be declared a national disaster so Mm -hmm. there was this you know elephants and rhinos were really being targeted at that time. All right. So, how did how did the you know how did government how did people respond? What was the what happened? Yeah, what happened? So it was actually a really interesting sort of segue for me into conservation because I think I have an activist bone in my body because <laughs> that's where it all started. 
So I started volunteering for um, an animal welfare organization that had a wildlife component to it. And I was basically leading something called uh, the Kenyans United Against Poaching Movement um, with them. And we had literally, we just thought, hey, you know, there are so many people, we need, we need something to happen, we need things to change. And we wanted the citizens' voices, like everyday people's voices to be heard. So we held uh, an event, uh, a march in early uh, January uh, of 2013. And, uh, you know, we thought, okay, we're gonna have this march, we're gonna do all these petitions, and then we're gonna follow up with the embassies, with the judiciary, with the police, with the Kenya Wildlife Service, and really, you know, make changes happen. Uh, whether it's the law or this, you know, we wanted to basically galvanize the, 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 you know, the funds and the willingness of the government to make a difference because that was what was needed at that time. And magically what happened was that, you know, we thought we'd have the one sort of big march and then we'd, we'd just go on our way and, and really follow up on these other, other things, but use that march as an event to galvanize that. But I ended up having to go to eight different marches across the country because I kept getting calls from people across, you know, from the north of the country, from the south of the country saying, you know, we want our voices to be heard. We have something to say and we want to be part of this movement. And it was really something that was phenomenal for me to witness um, how Kenyans truly, truly care. You know, we really care about our wildlife. Fantastic. Well, that brings us on nicely to uh, to vultures, really. So, just to start, before we get into the kind of the, the horror show, um, as it were, would you mind giving us a bit of background into the importance of vultures in the ecosystem, the job they do in terms of you know nature's uh, garbage garbage collectors, etc. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, I don't know if you've ever really observed vultures and you know seen the magnificence of their of their this group of species you know we have about 11 of those in in africa and we share six you know there's 16 sort of uh species that uh migrate or are found across europe asia and africa and 11 of those are found in africa i think six or so of them are endemic to africa so that's kind of the overview so there's such a varied set of creatures right each of these species has different, um, you know, habitats that they they either nest in cliffs or they nest in trees. Uh, you know, the Egyptian vulture will also eat eggs and grubs and insects and things like that. They all have different uh, elements to them. But at the sort of you touched on it when you said they're nature's garbage collectors. Uh, we call them nature's cleanup crew. You know, <laughs> they basically do the work of sanitation <laughs> and, uh, and those types of uh, organizations for free because they're, they're uniquely evolved. So what we call them, they're obligate scavengers, which basically means that they, that's all they feed on. They feed on carrion. Um, some of them feed on, you know, uh, grub and bugs and, and eggs, and they're a bit opportunistic like that. Um, but because of that, because of that, this over the years they've evolved uh, specifically to perform this function of cleaning up carcasses. And what has been found out over you know studying them and watching them is that where there are vultures, 
uh, carcasses are disposed of three times quicker, right? Their stomachs have probably what is the lowest pH in the world. Mm. Uh, so they're able to digest natural pathogens such as anthrax and tuberculosis. So this means that when you have a carcass out in the world, and let's say it's a diseased carcass, if a vultures, if vultures are present, that carcass is cleaned up very quickly. If they're not present, then you have three times the amount of time that that carcass stays out. You have a lot of scavengers, other scavengers who may not be obligate, like hyenas and uh, you know jackals, for instance, coming to the carcass, which increases the amount of time they spend together and the interactions, which increases the likelihood of this disease spreading. So without vultures, not only do we have an unclean environment, we also have the risk of, of you know, the likelihood of disease spreading going up. So they perform a very, very vital function apart from being, you know, just being God's creatures and being on this earth and, you know, being part of the biodiversity or the natural environment that we all share. Absolutely. Well, I think that, that leads us on nicely to the, um, the poisoning. Um, so would you want to tell us a little bit about the, the reasons for the, the poisoning, the, you know, the incentives, and just gives a little bit of background of how it's unfolding. Yes, absolutely. So as you said, you know, poisoning is actually one of the number one reasons for their decline. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, we have 11 species across Africa that are found in Africa. Seven of those are either critically endangered or endangered, which means that their populations have been declining anywhere from, uh, if I recall, 70% to 90-something, 90 94 97%, depending on the species, over the last 50 years. These declines are catastrophic for vultures because unlike a lot of other animals, they don't, uh, you know, like other, you know, uh, species, they don't uh, procreate so often. And it takes them a lot of energy and effort to have, you know, they'll have maybe one or two eggs every one or two years. Um, but so it, it's not something that's very easy to reverse when you have a huge decline like that in the species. Uh, whereas, you know, lions will have a few litters and, you know, they'll have more than one, one child um, or one offspring. So going back to the reasons for their decline, their myriad, uh, poisoning being the number one, especially in East and Southern Africa, uh, it has been sort of documented to be about 60, 61% of, of uh, vulture mortalities are attributed to poisoning. Um, and this can be for two reasons. So you have uh, unintentional. So that largely occurs as a result of sort of human and carnivore conflict. So livestock carcasses are laced with poison. So a lion comes and kills your, your cow. You get very upset because you've lost your livelihood. So you poison the, the livestock uh, to kill the lion, but of course, you know, vultures come in mass and they die in large numbers. So that's one of the big, big reasons for, for vulture population declines, especially in East Africa. In Southern Africa, you also have the added um, complications of what are called sentinel poisoning. So this is intentional. So, you know, you know vultures soar, right? And then they, they circle when, when they see a carcass and then they drop down. So that habit has been used as from 
by um, rangers to know that a poaching event has occurred. Uh, and so the poachers got cottoned on to this and they said, oh, let's, let's, uh, let's poison the carcass because then the vultures won't give us away too quickly. And so that's been another reason for, for poisoning. Um, along with that, we also have threats of what are called belief-based use, which is primarily in West Africa. And it's, the belief is that vulture parts can cure ailments or provide people with magical powers such as foresight or long life. And, uh, you know, they, they basically use vulture parts for that. So they either trap vultures or they poison them. Um, and that accounts for approximately 29% of vulture mortalities and is very concentrated in West Africa. And then we have also things like electrocutions and collisions. Um, and it's, you know, while it's sort of 9% of vulture mortalities, it is considered a growing threat because of the increased emphasis on electrification and wind energy. So uh, that's one of the big, big worries we have for the future. Um, and then, of course, there's always habitat de degradation and, mm. uh, uh, you know, loss of habitat that are also kind of a wide umbrella over all of these things. We don't know how much that's contributing to vulture declines, but, you know, when the nest trees get cut down for infrastructure, let's say, or they lose uh, foraging areas because of uh, agriculture, there's a lot of loss of... Uh, you know, habitat that could be contributing to their shrinking populations. All right, so pretty harrowing uh, picture you painted there. Um, all right, well, there's always got to be a bit of a, you know, a big but. So tell me, um, Salisha, but what is, what are you guys at, at, over at BirdLife and the Restore, Restore Species Partnership, excuse me, um, tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing over the previous years and how things are going there. Yeah, absolutely. As you could see, and as you've said, Jack, it's a hugely complex issue. Um, and so all these factors, it can be really overwhelming, especially across the region. So what we've done at BirdLife uh, across with our national partnership is sort of build on the multi-species action plan. So this is something that the Convention for Migratory Species put together in 2016 when they realized that this decline of vultures was happening and we needed to address things. So the bird life um, vulture conservation strategy is built on similar pillars. The first is kind of knowledge and planning. So trying to understand the threats better. So how do we know that 61% of you know, vulture mortalities are from poisoning? You know, why is that important to know? Because then you can say, okay, these are the conservation actions I should do in these areas to address that issue. So it helps, you know, getting that knowledge helps you uh, uh, basically design appropriate conservation interventions. Um, sorry, to jump, sorry, sorry, sorry to jump in. Just out of interest, how is that sort of data collected? I mean, it's collected in so many different ways. So partially there's something called the Africa Wildlife Poisoning Database that was created by the Peregrine Fund and Endangered Wildlife Trust. Um, and essentially we all feed or we all try to feed in as much data as we can into that when a poisoning event occurs. So any wildlife being poisoned, you, you put that in there and you find out, okay, so then that's how you develop, you know, the various hotspots of what's going on where and there's a reason why was it, why did the poisoning happen? So was it human wildlife conflict? Was it belief-based use? Was it X, Y, and Z? How, you know, did vultures actually die in that incident? So it has all that data. 
There's also the tagging of vultures uh, to watch their movements and their, you know, their behaviors. So it takes, it, it, you know, people and people studying doing road transects. Some of the stuff I mentioned above, you know, in terms of their, the services they provide, that's been studied by putting out carcasses and observing how quickly they disappear in an area mm. with vultures versus without vultures. Um, so research is super important and basically sharing of that information because it's not just bird life who's doing this, it's all these various different stakeholders that come to the table. Um, so that's where you get that knowledge from. Fantastic. And over at BirdLife, you guys have been working with, you know, people on the ground, like real local communities and, you know, um, who obviously have you know, a direct uh, stake in, you know, what happens with these these, these species and ecosystems. So tell us a little, bit, a little bit more about the strategy that that the Restored Species Partnership has in place to, to counteract these uh, this decline. Yeah, absolutely. So building on so that you know the knowledge and planning is the one pillar then you have sort of awareness raising because you just asked me you know why what's happening with vultures you wouldn't believe the amount of times i get asked like vulture conservation do vultures need conservation yeah 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 i've heard that too yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah they just don't realize what an issue it is and why it's so important so that's a big component uh, you know, at sort of a global level, at a regional level and national level, but there's also all the work that we would do with communities and speaking to them about not only the dangers of poisoning, but the, but the lack of vultures in their space. Um, and then you realize that as that they, they, they already know a lot of this stuff, right? Communities mm. have been living with wildlife and, and vultures for as part of their systems for years, especially pastoralists. They'll say, yeah, you know, we know when a cow is dead because we can see the vultures circling, but that's gone down. So you, you have a lot of that information and, and raising that awareness around the dangers of the pesticides and the toxins that are used and what they can do, not only to the, you know, to the wildlife, but what they do to the larger, um, you know, what, how they could affect their own livestock, how could they, how they could affect their own, uh, you know, children, for instance. Um, in Zambia or Zimbabwe, there's a person who's lost his mates to cyanide poisoning, you know, that was put in the waters to kill, to kill yes. elephants. So there, there's a lot of that knowledge and, and awareness raising really helps. And linked to that is advocacy. So, you know, putting in enabling uh, policies and things like that. Uh, to support the vulture conservation efforts. So, you know, we can have, uh, I'll talk a little bit about, as you said, what are the actions on the ground? So, especially around poisoning, we've kind of developed um, together with our partners, sort of two levels of dealing with poisoning. One I've already talked a little bit about, and that's that community engagement and that raising of awareness. So we're, through that, we're trying to reduce the incidences of poisoning, right? Um, but the other thing is, how do you deal with a poisoning event when it happens? How do you reduce the fallout from a poisoning event? So that's through rapid response mechanisms. Um, and those have been sort of uh, the, the go-to thing, especially in Kenya, 
where we've spent a lot of time developing a poison response protocol together with a whole bunch of stakeholders on how to respond to a poisoning incidents, how quickly, uh, how to save vultures uh, and other wildlife when you get there. So that's all about limiting the, you know, the collateral damage of a poisoning incident. So the quicker you can get there, the more lives you'll save, the less, you know, the quicker you decontaminate the scene, so get rid of the poison carcass, the less, you know, jackals, hyenas, vultures, etc., will die. So that's kind of been the focus um, with that, together with the data that we just talked about, you know, having national poisoning incident databases that feed into the big um, thing. So as part of that, we've done about nine, I think, poison response training for our partners in nine countries. Uh, and in three countries, or and almost four now, poison response protocols are, have either been developed or are being developed. Um, yeah, so that's some of the things that we did, we've done around combating poisoning. I think the other sort of really connected uh, action on the ground here is the vulture safe zone. So this is a concept that we borrowed from Asia, but then adapted it for to the African context, specifically in Southern Africa, where we have about a million hectares now of vulture safe zones. And the idea here is that these areas are sort of free from the, the key threats to vultures that we mentioned, whether it's poisoning, electrocution, uh, safe food. Um, particularly in areas where vultures kind of need significant protection. And the beauty of this is it's land managers and owners and community members sort of saying, putting their hands up and voluntarily saying, we're going to make our, our area vulture safe. Brilliant. That's fantastic. Just a um, little question there. How do you tackle belief-based use? What's the... Strategy there. I think that's that seems a little bit more complicated, isn't it? You're dealing with a slightly different um, incentive there, aren't you? Very, very much, very much so. Such a complicated question, yeah. uh, <laughs> or complicated like thing to deal with because you you know these are people's beliefs and their perceptions and their attitudes to something. Uh, how do you how do you uh, sort of address that? And we've had a few really interesting projects going on. Um, Specifically, we started in Nigeria, but the idea essentially is how do you reduce demand? So the, again, the awareness and engagement around, you know, this is happening to vultures. This is why it's happening, etc., is really important because I don't think people, again, realize that, oh, you know, that vulture part, is con that use of that vulture part is connected to this massive decline. And that's why I'm not seeing, you know, the hooded vulture that was in my neighborhood anymore. Um, so there's that part of it. But the other thing is, in, in these contexts uh, and the way that uh, vulture parts are being used, the traditional healer is, is key because they're the ones who either use the vulture part to sort of commune with the spirits or they're the ones who would prescribe it. So a lot of the work that's going on in Nigeria and, you know, starting to happen in Zimbabwe and starting to be thought about in sort of Guinea-Bissau, Senegal and the Gambia is around how do we um, promote maybe plant-based alternatives? So, you know, working with basically these traditional healers and saying to them, yes, you know, do you know that there's a problem? Like, what can we do about it? And really working with them to develop the homegrown solutions. Because I think 
too many times we try to go in there and sort of prescribe a way forward, but that's not going to work when you're trying to change attitudes. It has to come together and, you know, be, be done in a participatory approach. And so that's the approach that we've taken. And, uh, you know, we'll start to see hopefully the behavior change manifest itself, you know, both with the people understanding, hey, you know, when I go to a traditional healer and they're using vulture parts, this is really affecting uh, them through the promote, you know, through the change in sort of the traditional healer's uh, approach. We're not saying stop doing your medicine and your, the important role that you play in the society, but maybe consider other things that aren't, you know, other things that uh, will not endanger species such as vultures. And then there's the law enforcement side of things as well, you know, the, the right. increasing their capacity so that they understand, you know, that part that I saw being trafficked as an endangered species, it's not just another bird, uh, you know, so things like that, because they don't know how to recognize vulture pots. So building their capacity around that and understanding around that is key. Of course, of course. Okay, so since the projects, well, obviously many different projects, but are you getting to see some positive uh, results? In the data? Yeah, I mean, I would say so. I think we're still very early in, in, in the of game. Course. We're only five years into this, of you know. Uh, there's been also work that we're doing on medic trying to mitigate electrocutions and collisions, but all of this is very new. Uh, but what I would say is that we're definitely seeing a, a step change in being able to respond to poisoning incidences. We're seeing better collaboration amongst different types of stakeholders. Um, you know, and I think with poisoning, especially because some of it is so secretive, you really don't know what your baseline is, like right. where are you from? And, you know, maybe there's an uptick in known poisoning incidences because now we've shed light on this. Mm. And so you have more people reporting poisoning. So it's very hard to say, hey, are we making a difference? But I think every time we save a vulture, we're making a difference. And, you know, just the other day, this happened in Kenya where we did lose a lot of vultures, but we also saved four, um, four vultures and a, and a step eagle. And that's, that may not have happened, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago. And what was that? Was that like a trafficking sort of intervention, something like that, a raid or what happened there? To poisoning. So in Kenya, the main major issue is human wildlife conflict. So I think a bunch of hyenas had uh, repeatedly killed livestock and, um, the owners got fed up and yeah, we had, we had, it was, it was what would be the biggest poisoning incident in Kenya this year with 31 vultures being killed, um, seven step eagles. But as I said, we managed to save five and now they're back in the wild. Good, good. Um, we mentioned a few minutes ago that uh, when you tell people about your work, they often say, really, like vultures, you know, they're endangered. And I have to admit that before I found out about, about all this, this, um, this going on, I would have been in that, uh, in that group. Um, you know, you think kind of, well, if I sort of interrogate myself a little bit, I can't quite understand why that was my reaction. Why, why do you think that is? Is it because we sort of put vultures in the kind of the quote unquote, you know, ugly category we put them in with you know maggots and you know um all that kind of thing you know what i mean because i see it as a bit of a like a, you know, a bad attitude as a, you know, a disease bringer or something where in reality they're actually as we've been illustrating doing the opposite so wh where do you think that's people's reaction i, mean, 
I think a lot of it has to do with the stereotypes that are created over time. Mm. You know, it's a cartoon that promotes them in such a way, uh, whether it's, you know, politicians are often likened to vultures. The whole entire gory way in which they feed, uh, you know, a lot of people find that very off-putting. And Mm. then not contextualized for them so they don't realize what that is uh, and why it's so important um, you know and that you know their behaviors are so, I find them supremely interesting to see how they when they're feeding and you know the little sort of altercations they have but to other people it looks like oh they're bickering and you know it's it, it's just a way that their society works so I think mm. they get a very bad rep and uh, I would say that um you know, the media and the communications industry hasn't done them a, a justice. And uh, we need to change that narrative because actually, as a lot of the times we say, they are nature's unsung heroes. They are making a massive difference. And the lack of them, uh, I, I don't know if you heard what happened in places like India when the vulture populations declined dramatically. Was this when rabies skyrocketed? Cases of rabies skyrocketed because the dogs were feeding on, you know, carcasses. Is that is that correct? Have I got that right? Yeah, it is correct. I mean, some of the science is still a bit in question, but it, there is, you know, there is that uh, there is a correlation for sure that the, you know that there's a, there's that connection between the decline in vultures and um, the increase in rabid uh, dogs and rabies in the country, which then affected the health system dramatically, right? Right. Uh, and so there's, you know, as we had talked about earlier, there's a, there's a definite connection where what, what we would call in our world trophic cascades. So basically when you remove something out of the system, then something else has to, it will go up to take its place and in the place of vultures come other scavengers whether it be feral dogs or hyenas or other things and it it just upsets the balance um but yeah i think that's the problem is that you know yeah you often see a you often see a vulture with blood you know bloody head and entrails and and things like that and so you associate it negatively when actually what they're doing when they're doing that. And they're one of the cleanest creatures on this earth, actually, because they spend most of their time preening uh, and cleaning after they're fed um, every day. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what's, what's, again, obviously we're talking about Africa here, but what's happened in India now? Has there been a response to that? Or is that yeah, been dealt with? A massive response. Yeah. Um, and something called... Uh, I'm going to get the acronym wrong, but it's called SAVE. So Saving Asia's Vultures from Extinction or something like that. There's a consortium of over 24 sort of different um, organizations that have come together and uh, are working really hard to reintroduce vultures, uh, to create vulture safe stones, have vulture restaurants where they have safe feeding. Because luckily for them, I think the, the issue is less complicated in India. And Asia, it's more around uh, the use of veterinary drugs. Uh, um, rather than poaching. Yeah, and livestock and things like that, that's causing the decline. Whereas we have so many different things that are affecting uh, vultures here in Africa. Absolutely. Okay, so going on from there. So looking into the, you know, looking into the future, obviously the projects are quite, quite new, um, but there's a lot of great work going on. 
what would you like to see happen over the next sort of five to ten years, uh, you know, and onwards um, with regard to, to the vultures and your work? the next five years what I would really love to see is a you know obviously continued efforts um, but what is critical is collaboration and not just let's say from the raptor conservation organizations but looking more broadly at lions and elephants and human wild you know basically wildlife in general um, to sort of come together and work on this wildlife poisoning issue and make a real big difference there. I think if we're able to address, you know, 61, like one of the major drivers, we're going to then start seeing populations hopefully starting to revive uh, and, you know, going from halting the decline to hopefully reversing the decline of vultures. Uh, it's obviously going to take a long time, but that's our, that's our vision. You know, we want to help vultures soar again and collaboration and working together and reversing this sort of image of vultures and creating a uh, one where people truly understand these heroes uh, is, is a world I want to be a part of. I don't know about you. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Keep off the, the anthrax and tuberculosis would be uh, pretty pretty ideal. Um, okay, so, so Alicia, we've covered many uh, many topics. Is there anything else you'd like to, like to share, like to talk about, like to just you know, tell our, uh, our listeners? I would just want to say that each and every one of us can make a difference, uh, whether it's by you know listening to this podcast today and realizing vultures are in trouble and, and going and speaking to other people about it, whether it's saying, hey, I have this skill set, I can help, you know, in this way or the other, we're very happy for people to reach out to us and say, you know, I, I know how to use GIS, or I am a lawyer, I can help with this policy, etc. or I have this information, um, you know, and, and then obviously if there's any financial support, that's always very useful. But at the end of the day, I think for me is go out there and, and talk about vultures and, the, and why they're important uh, would be number one. Brilliant. All right, Alicia, so where can people find find your work, see what they're doing, and um, see what you're doing, I should say, and, and keep updated? Uh, absolutely. So I think the BirdLife Africa website or the BirdLife International website has an Africa page on it. Um, and so if you go there and look for vulture conservation, it will be there. I don't remember exactly the, the, the address. The yeah. Yeah. Time, but yes, I'm sure people could find it fantastic. Oh, okay, Sisha, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely, thank you so much, Jack, for taking the time for vultures. Much appreciated. <laughs>